book of Judges, chapter 4. We're going to be looking at the whole chapter, 1 through 24. Before we hear God's word read, let's go again to, to our God and asking for his help in understanding this text. Gracious God, we depend upon your light, we depend upon your spirit to understand and make proper application of this glorious text to our hearts. We pray that through the preaching of this text, your name would be highly exalted. In Christ we pray, amen. This is Judges 4. Hear now the word of God. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hatzor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harosheth Hagoim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now Deborah, prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the, ju- and the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun, and I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. And 10,000 men went up at his heels. And Deborah went up with him. Now Heber the Kenite had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pinched, or pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zanaim, which is near Kadesh. When Sisera was told that Barak the son of Abinoam had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him from Harosheth Hagoim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up! For this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Harosheth Hagoim. And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin and the king of Hatzor in the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you, is anyone here, say no. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. 
Then she went softly to him and drove the tent of the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with the tent pig in his temple. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. And may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. We come this morning to the judge that many of us perhaps have been waiting for, or shall I say, Judge S, not a word, but female judge. Deborah is a controversial figure, there's no doubt about that. Not that she in herself is really controversial, if we consider how she has acted and the words she has spoken, but she is used in, uh, in two different directions. On the one hand, she has been used by some to prove a kind of biblical feminism. Women power, stick into the man, down with the patri- patriarchy, all that jazz. You know, we need all the women rulers that we can get. The, the, the man is the, is the head of the home. But the woman, as one movie says, is, is the neck that, that turns the head controls the heads in the home, in the church, in the state. That's one way that Deborah's been used. On the other hand, Deborah's been used by others to speak against all rule by women. If you love the father of the Scottish Reformation, John Knox, and you should, you may or may not love him less when you find out that he wrote a scathing treatise called First Blast of the Trumpet Against the Monstrous Regiment of Women. In this treatise, he had certain Mary's in mind of Tudor, of Guy, and he was acting against that kind of women rule. Now, Deborah would be displeased with how she has been pulled in both directions. She'd be dissatisfied, mainly because she would confess that she really isn't the focus of this text. This text really isn't about her. Of course, no text is about anyone, really, about, than Christ himself. In this chapter, which views the events from the earthly perspective, and in the next chapter, chapter 5, which views the same events from the heavenly perspective, we see that it's all about the glory of God. The Lord gets the glory. And we don't need to be sexist in either direction. Down with Deborah, and so down with all women, on the one hand. Or down with Barak, and so down with all men, on the other. We will see, on the one hand, that God uses Deborah to correct a weak-faithed Barak. And on the other hand, that God uses an excellent woman to ensure a glorious victory. Through this text, we we see that the Lord calls his people to accept their responsibilities gladly. And he uses weak creatures for his own glory. Again, verse 1 says, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And we've only just begun, and we see this word again, again. Ehud dies, Israel returns to his sin, and so the Lord sells Israel into slavery under King Jabin and the commander Sisera. This is a very hard slavery, a particularly cruel oppression that we see 
and one that lasted for 20 years. The 900 chariots of iron that King Jabin had that were commanded by Sisera, these were too much for Israel, too much for Israel to handle. And so what does a people so oppressed do but cry out to the Lord for help? We don't walk far into this text before seeing already two brief applications. The first is the repetitive boredom of sin. Sin is not as creative as we think. When we read this book, we come to this word again, we are meant to ask, again? Really? Over and over? Haven't we already learned that we shouldn't sin against God? That oppression comes? That God has a better way? Haven't we already learned? No, we have not. There is nothing new under the sun. And our sin makes us less and less thrilled by it. Sin may at first excite our flesh, like someone who just got a new hat and he wants to wear it everywhere, even if it doesn't match his other clothes. But it will soon become old hat, something that we turn to again and again because, well, it's grown on us. It's comfortable. We, we like our sinful comforts. We like to turn to those things, those people, those, those places, those gifts from God, and turn them, twist them, pervert them, view them as our own God. And so this is a reminder that we are to pray, may, may God, by His grace, cause us to see the boredom of our sins before they bury us, and to see the fullness of life in the Spirit, that life in the Spirit is not boring. The Lord keeps us on our toes. And how can we ever get bored with the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, who is infinite, perfect, eternally wise, powerful, gracious, compassionate. How could we ever get bored with him? Another point of application is a restraint as guise for repentance. External pressures stir up an appearance of godliness. Israel did all right, all things considered, until Ehud was gone. Ehud, under the care of God, did well to restrain Israel as their judge. And this is one of the uses of the law, to restrain the sins of men and women. But a civil restraint is never a sufficient restraint. It's never enough to fear punishment. That's not a motive. That's not a proper motive for godliness. What do all the employees and the restaurant manager do when they see a health inspector coming through the door? What do the children upstairs do when they hear dad coming up to check on the progress of their messy bedrooms? What does a passionless teacher do when his department chair suddenly steps in the classroom, takes a seat with clipboard in hand, certain to stick around for a while? What do all these people do? They get to working. They get to cleaning. They get to teaching. They get to do the thing that they are called to do. 
And we have to remember that our God, who is our Heavenly Father, sees everything. He doesn't take a day off. He gives us a day off from our work. We don't rest in Him, but He doesn't sleep. He doesn't slumber. All of our actions are seen by our great God. And He's not... He doesn't have that clipboard just checking off. Did you, did you do this? Did you do that? Some kind of taskmaster? But someone who is checking on us as our Father in heaven who loves us and who, who has a perfect will for us. And he wants us to be more like his son. And so may we, by the grace of God, seek his face for true lasting, deeper, and ever deeper repentance, more godly living. Because ultimately, again, we want to be more like Christ. And as we turn to Deborah's usefulness in this text, we also see Barak's shamefulness. Verse 6, she, that is Deborah, sent and summoned Barak the son of Abinoam from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 for the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun? And so we come to something in the book of Judges that we saw at the end of the Gospel of Mark a little while ago. And we have to be very careful about what the Bible says and what it does not say here. The Bible speaks of Deborah in a way that is different from how the Bible speaks of the other judges. She is not viewed as being raised up by the Lord, nor is she viewed as saving Israel. She is understood, in verse 4, as a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. And she was judging Israel at that time. That is, when Israel was doing evil before God. And we already know that judges were military leaders They are raised up by God for this singular purpose, to deliver Israel from the hand of the oppressors. Though she was judging, she actually was not the judge appointed. And this is something that Scripture speaks to in two other places. In 1 Samuel 12, verse 11, in Samuel's farewell address, he acknowledges that Barak was given to the people as judge. In Hebrews 11, 32, Barak as well is mentioned. Barak, he is the one who should have been judging. As Deborah herself had said, has not the Lord commanded you? Go. And later on, in verse 14, Deborah said to Barak, up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. She was doing some of Barak's job, because he had weak knees and weak hands. He had faith in the Lord, so we shouldn't be too hard on the man, especially since this is very early on in redemptive history. He had faith in the Lord. He is, again, among the hall of faith in Hebrews 11. But clearly he needed a prophetic help me, didn't he? He told, he, he told Deborah that he needed her. He needed Deborah to hold his hand for him, to go with him into the battle. He says, I'll go if you go. If you don't go, I'm not going. And so she says, fine, I will go. But you have to remember that 
the glory will not be yours. It will be given to someone else. And so the irony here is that Barak needed a woman to call him to man up, to go to war, to rescue Israel. John Calvin, in one of his letters, comments on the extraordinary grace of God in a time like this. To commend, to commend Deborah, but also to shame Barak. He says, God's extraordinary grace is sometimes very conspicuous because to approach men for their sluggishness, he raises up women endowed not only with a manly but a heroic spirit, as in the case of Deborah. So Deborah judging is an extraordinary grace of God. We are thankful to God for this extraordinary grace. At the same time, we say, why was this necessary? Why weren't you there, Barak? Where was your courage? Where was your strength in the Lord? Why did our risen Lord appear first to women and not to men? As I argued in the end of the Gospel of Mark, it was to shame the men for leaving him. These men that walked alongside him, that he taught for three years, who all left him. It was to shame them for their abandonment, but also to commend the women, those who stayed true in their devotion to him. Those who even at the early part of his ministry would fund, would help finance Jesus' ministry, who gave of their own resources for the expansion of the kingdom, for the proclamation of the gospel. They were devoted to Christ, and they were rewarded then for that devotion. And so we can, on the one hand, thank the Lord for these women at the tomb. We can thank the Lord for Deborah to speak the voice of God in matters of war. According to Numbers 1, it was the men who went to war. And on the other hand, we can see the shamefulness that comes with weak need soldiers. Now, Deborah's word that Barak will not receive the glory is seen at the end of this chapter in verse 22 in the life of Jael. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with the tent peg in his temple. Barak, he did fight. We're thankful that he had that courage, that faith in the Lord to fight. He did pursue Sisera, who fled from the battle. But he was, as we see here, too late. He didn't have the privilege of being an instrument in God's hand to finish the job, to take down Sisera. Instead, the man's skull was thrusted through by smaller yet valiant hands. And even this denied conquest was to Jael's earthly glory and to Barak's shame. It was also, of course, to Sisera's shame because he was killed by a woman. And to be killed by a woman was always seen as shameful for the one killed. Just a few chapters later in Judges 9, an unnamed unnamed woman threw down an upper millstone upon the head of the godless Abimelech. And you'll recall that to be spared shame as he was dying, his armor bearer finished him off. Judges and commanders conquered by the wicker vessel are not praised, but they are shamed. The Lord calls us to accept our responsibilities gladly, courageously, 
God uses these women to shame the men. Now, hear me very clearly here. This does not mean that the women are shamed. Now, the men are shamed. The women are not. Consider a single mother whose husband and, and whose husband leaves her and her children, leaves them to fend for themselves. What shall we say of that woman who picks up the pieces? What shall we say of her who, who picks up the slack? Shall we condemn her? Shall we shame her? No, she is not to be shamed for picking up the pieces that have been broken by her husband, by the father. She is to be commended for her courage, commended for her faith. She may even be considered more heroic. And we might even see God's extraordinary grace in her case because of her devotion to do a two-person job single-handedly. I recently read an article of a man who calls himself a trophy husband. You've heard of the phrase trophy wife, right? So this is a trophy husband. And this man has three wives. So it's a polyamorous relationship. And he stays at home and just enjoys being at home while his three wives work full-time jobs throughout the week. And he says he, he loves it. It's a great arrangement. And here is a man who has abandoned his own, well, one, the marriage bed by introducing another, right? But also his, his call from God to work, to provide, to protect, to give and not to be given things, to work for the good of another. And of course, you don't have to be engaged in a polyamorous relationship to see the point here that for all of us, God is calling us to work heartily for him, to take up our God-given responsibilities, whether we be male or female. So men, man up. And whatever calling God has given you, use your physical strength, use your spiritual strength to the glory of God, for the good of those under your charge. If you're married, do not test God by neglecting your family. Do not challenge God to raise up a heroic, wifely Deborah to urge you to battle. He's already given you that call. So man up. Go to battle for the Lord, for his glory, for the good of your wife, your children. But if you do challenge God in this way, then may he humble you to thank him for not leaving you still. If you are a woman considering marriage, do not be joined to a spiritual baby, a boy, a youth, but to one that you know that you can submit to, to one who is willing to fight for you and for the kids on all fronts. And you might find yourself in a marriage with a weak-faithed barrack. No man is perfect except for Christ himself. All men have some working to do, some improving to do. But it's for them to do. So do not do his job. But encourage him to do his job. Pray for him. 
Pray earnestly for him, day and night. Urge him by the prophetic, spirit-inspired word to follow Christ and do so with a quiet and gentle spirit, as Peter tells us in 1 Peter 3. All of us, whether we are married or not, whether we are old or young, male or female, we all must face the heat of trials head on. And we do so here with with faith in the Lord, with, with the fear of God and not the fear of man. We address the problem. We don't avoid the problem. We don't attack the person, but we attack the problem. And we go to work. By faith, we reject that impulse that our first father taught us. Remember when God approached Adam in the garden, Adam said, I was afraid because I was naked, and so I hid myself. No, we don't let the sun go down on our anger, as Paul tells us. But we let the Son of Righteousness, Christ Himself, be both the source of the righteous anger and the solution to the problems that we face. We address, we do not avoid. It was this Son who said, as He was troubled in His spirit, What shall I say? Father, deliver me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. He looked at the cross straight in the face. He looked at death right in its face and said, I will keep going. Because I have a people to save. I have a work to finish. His work would be incomplete if he didn't go to that cross. A perfect life lived on earth without going to the cross would still leave us in our sins. So he went head on. He attacked the problem. And this son, this judge, will help us to resist the devil. And we are assured that when we resist the devil by the power of the Spirit, by unburdening ourselves, by giving our burdens to the Father, when we do this, the devil will flee from us. We can defend ourselves and even be on the offensive against the attacks of the enemy, because we have a greater one, one who is greater in power, in wisdom, in love. We have Christ. As we come to this final point, we see that there was shame, yes, there was weakness, yes, and and there was a promise from Deborah that Barak would not receive the glory. And so we wonder, well, who then will receive this glory if, if Barak isn't going to receive it? And, and how is this glory going to be given? Who receives it but God? And how does he receive it but through weakness? God used heroic Deborah to call Barak to battle. Up, today is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Do you, the Lord goes before you. Don't you see this? She spoke to him. And so God uses a seemingly insignificant detail but the movements of a man named Heber in verse 11. When I read this text, maybe you thought, well, why is verse 11 there? And you don't find out until the end why verse 11 is there. Back in chapter 1, verse 16, these Kenites went up to Judah. This is where Jethro's people went. He's called Hobab here in Judges 4, but this is Moses' father, or um, Zipporah's father, Moses' father-in-law. He had a few different names 
This man, Heber, left this group, this group of Kenites, settles in, instead to uh, a place near the Sea of Galilee called Kadesh in the north. And the battle that was to take place took place at Mount Tabor, just to the west of where Heber had settled. So when Barak and his men fought against Sisera, Sisera fled to a place and to a people that he knew, to a people and to a place that he thought were uh, alliances with the king, King Jabin. He thought there was peace between Jabin and Heber, but he was sorely mistaken. He was wrong here. It just so happened that this man, Heber, had a wife who knew how to wield a hammer. And so Deodolf Davis says, not even Heber's U-Haul was outside Yahweh's plan. These movements, this verse 11 that seems so insignificant, is in God's plan, sovereignly directed. Why one family would part from a group and go and hang out over here and live and settle over here. And time became instrumental in the conquest over Sisera, over Jabin. Clearly, dear saints, the devil is not in the details, but the Lord God is. God who, who works all things out according to the counsel of his will. God used J.L., the nobody wife of a nobody, for his glory. And we see that Sisera is exhausted from fighting a losing battle, and he flees for safety. It just so happens that J.L. sees him and calls him over. She provides a godly hostility under the guise of godly hospitality. She offers him refuge. Rest, security, seclusion, food, drink, whatever he needs. Everything that a battle-wearied soldier could ever need. To get away, to be restored. So she says, shh, Sisera, you're safe now. Have some milk. Have a comforting blanket. Take a load off. She softly walks up to the sleeping beauty. And, she, and as he is dreaming of peace, as he is being safe and sound, she makes not a sound, and she pulls out that hammer and that tent peg. She lines the nail to the skull of the enemy, and she drives it into his head, into the ground. Praise be to God. Matthew Henry says, He that had thought to have destroyed Israel with, with his many iron chariots is himself destroyed with one iron nail. Thus the weak things of the world confound the mighty. In the spirit of Genesis 3.15, J.L. crushes the head of Satan's seed, Sisera, and he dies. And we see through this text that God has graciously involved people into his battle. He graciously included Barak to fight this battle. He allowed J.L. to be an instrument in his hand. He even allowed these Israelites, who should be his enemies, to fight alongside him to win this battle. The Lord uses weak men and women to bring glory to himself within a full victory. It was the Lord who routed Sisera. It was the Lord who subdued Jabin. It was the Lord who did it all. It was the Lord who worked glory from both shameful and heroic, but still weak people. Dear ones, God glorifies himself through weakness. This is how God works in history. This is how God the Son worked, is it not? He had his glory from eternity cloaked in frail humanity as he humbled himself. 
He allowed the shameful, weak cross to be his glory. He allowed shameful and weak men and women to call for his death and to plunge nails into his hands and his feet for his glory. He who was humbled is now exalted, the right hand of the Father, and all will confess that Christ is Lord over all. It is this same God-man who is working through every apparently insignificant detail of yours for his glory and your good. It is this same God who is humbling you and who will use your humility for his glory. It is this same God who, after humbling you, one day will exalt you in glory with himself, raising you in glory, giving you a resurrected body. Such is the compassionate, marvelous grace of our loving Lord. To God be the glory of great things he has done. Let's pray. Our God, you truly have done great things, and we can spend, will spend, in eternity proclaiming the redemptive deeds, these marvelous works. We pray, Lord, that you would continue to work marvelously in our lives, that you would take, by the power and ministry of the Spirit, that you would take this word and make that efficacious application to our hearts because we are weak and we desire to be more like Christ and we desire to do the things that you've called us to do, but we need your help. We need your spirit. We need your power. We need your compassion. We pray for these things in Christ's name. Amen.